and welcome to this inaugural episode of the Homefront History Podcast. Now, I'm not alone in this endeavour because I couldn't do a history podcast without two esteemed historians next to me. And we have Andy Chatterton and Chris Colongo with me. And you'll know them better as uh, one chap who absolutely loves the auxiliary units and the stay behinds. And Chris is crazy about concrete. Fellas, it's amazing to be finally doing this with you. Yeah, it's uh, it's really cool, isn't it? Yeah, it's been a long time in the planning, but yeah, good to finally be here. It's good. It's good. Uh, I think I think we're onto a good thing. I think this is going. Well, I hope if so. nothing else, us three are going to have amazing chats, and yeah. uh, if people want to listen, then <laughs> all the better. They can do. Yeah, <laughs> bore them rigid for uh, forty-five minutes or so. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, Andy, you got us all together like your own secret auxiliary unit. We've been squirreling away behind the scenes. And now we're fully operational. So maybe it might be a good opportunity to tell everyone what the aims of the show are as we go along. Yeah. So I thought I was speaking, I was speaking to you, Robbie, about Home Guard stuff and how the Home Guard is misunderstood. And I was kind of conversing with Chris on Twitter about uh, the role of regulars and the TA in the defence of Britain in, in kind of particularly in 1940 and pillboxes and stop lines and stuff like that. And <clears throat> I just got to thinking, do you know what? We're eight over 80 years away from that, from, from, from that summer of 1940 particularly. And people still have absolutely, frankly, no idea about the reality. <laughs> and it's something, it's something that I, um, come across all the time, you know, the, the auxiliary units and special duties branch, all that secret stuff. It's kind of understandable why people maybe don't have an understanding or, or, or any knowledge of that kind of stuff, but, you know, the very nature of those units. But how have we not got a better understanding of the role pillboxes play? And why do we not know more about actually the role that the TAs and the, and the, and the regulars played in, in the defence? And also, much wider than that, you know, what did... Jones' granddad do during the war as an ARP messenger. What what did the Land Army do? Who were the Lumberjills? I yeah. think this is all stuff that is really interesting that happened right here in the UK uh, that I would, well, firstly, love to learn more about. Uh, and secondly, I think it's, a, you know, makes for a, for a really interesting, really interesting podcast. And, and, and you guys, I thought, were perfect co-host material. <laughs> that means a lot. That's great. <laughs> yeah, fantastic. Yeah. yeah. So basically what you're saying, Andy, is if you would just force us to fight an invasion with you, is that what you're saying? Yeah, essentially, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Now, you're, now you're in. Now you're in. <laughs> you can either join or or you're added to a list. Oh, right. Fair <laughs> enough. Yeah. Right, right, let's start taking the bunker in the back garden. <laughs> <laughs> I think you're right, though, because it's it's the thing. It's, it's on our doorstep mm. and we probably walk past it every day and don't even realise it's there. It's just something that completely gets overlooked. I think when you're at school... It's very much, there was blitz, there was rationing, then the war ended. Yeah. At yeah, the, yeah. Home front-wise, there's, no, there's, there's so much going on. Like for me, you know, I'm interested in the Home Guard part of it, but I also find the propaganda element of it really interesting. Yeah. The way that British film deals with the Home Front. Um, you know, it, it's everything. It's every facet of life gets gets turned into a war footing in some way. Yeah. And I just, think, I just think there's so much, I mean, obviously it's not been, not been talked about before but there's so much that you can you can explore with something like this i think it's going to be really enriching certainly people are now i don't know whether i think it's two things that people are really interested in in that british home front particularly people in britain is that one that generation is now very quickly leaving us and and, and so even 
you know, getting direct testimony from from someone who was even alive during the Blitz or or, or, or ever is is getting increasingly hard to do. But but equally, I think you know, having the pictures from the awful war in Ukraine of normal people, civilians, you know, that the people generally can relate to from a European perspective is is suddenly oh Jesus actually that mm. you know similar types of things even though we weren't invaded were happening in this country to normal people as it were 80 years ago so you know let's 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 look into it more so yeah from my perspective exactly what Andy said earlier about um you know the fact it's 80 years ago yet we still know very little about um what was going on on the home front you know uh, so from my perspective yeah the story of the regulars and TAs is which something that I've focused on for the last well, nearly 20 years now and it's just surprising that whenever you mention a pillbox or you know if you follow my content online whenever I mention anything it's the first thing that comes through is um you know um gifts and quotes from dad's army and it's just like <laughs> one stop sending me that rubbish and uh yeah. so that is you know the home guard were one small facet of a much larger organization um and in terms of the home front defenses you know i'm i write a lot of kind of like stuff looking at the myths of the home front in particular pillboxes and one little analogy that i've come up with uh in an upcoming pillbox myth is you know it's like trying to tell the story of the battle of britain without even mentioning the pilots you know yeah. and it it's the oddest thing um and it's just weird seeing how um you know you see these same myths and stories come around and you know, kind of stay on the surface while underneath there's much more interesting stuff going on. And I think that's something we're going to get a really good chance to look at through this podcast. That's the whole point, isn't it? You know, we, we're going to be a bit less dad's army, a bit more pillboxes and, you know, anti-tank weaponry, real army stuff, rather than being like, oh, it was these really old guys. It was like, it well, it, you know, it kind of was, but it kind of wasn't. With all this stuff, there's no one size fits all story. No. You know, as you see with the home guards, you know, in the early days, yeah, they were relatively mismanaged and, you know, obviously underarmed. But over time, this story changed. And throughout the war, you know, they developed into a massively effective fighting unit. And there's no one-size-fits-all story with this stuff. There's so much variation across the country. And the history changes on a month-to-month basis when, you know, what I really like about the Home Guard, even though it's not my thing, is seeing how they developed over time into what was essentially an effective fighting unit towards the end of the war, you know. Mm-hmm. 100%. And I think also the other interesting thing, is that a lot of this stuff still remains tangible, even though the people aren't necessarily with us. The the pillboxes, the anti-tank traps, the you know, all that stuff is here, but not seen in the context of the time. So you see a lonely pillbox in a field as you're driving past and you think, well, that's not gonna be very effective, is it? I mean, the Germans will just bypass it or they'll just blow it, you know, without seeing it in context, without seeing it with camouflage, without seeing it with the interconnecting trenches to to other pillboxes nearby, you, you can't get a proper understanding as to as to how it's going to be effective. And I, I think a lot of this, again, is, is down to that uh, kind of 60s and 70s view of Britain and, and, you know, being a pretty poor show, actually, and it's the Americans and Russians what won it. Well, that actually, you know, it, it, it's not necessarily true. And I think I think a lot of people kind of forgot about how effective we would have been in defence and how, you know, the remarkable stories that, that just aren't told about firemen and ARP and, you know, because it a lot of this stuff and a lot of the stuff of the Second World War perhaps understandably focuses on the big battles and the big generals and 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 and, and all that kind of stuff. Whereas what I find fascinating is the, 
the, the human element, the human story that mm. what people were prepared to do. And I'm going to say ordinary people, obviously the guys in the regular armies who are fighting in, in Africa or, or, or mainland Europe or wherever it might be, were ordinary, are ordinary, ordinary chaps, but the people who stayed at home, who had a job to do during, during the day and then went off and did something else or were doing a, had a role where they couldn't tell anyone about it and got white feathers and, you know, all that kind of stuff. It, that, that's the fascinating stuff. That's, that's the stuff that blows me away. Yeah. It, and that's it. And, and for me as well, like talking about what we want to cover really, but for me, I'm, I'm always fascinated about the, the, the battles that don't get fought. So the cold war, there's an, there's an invasion scare there that never gets talked about. We definitely cover like the home service force of the eighties later on, but I'm getting ahead of myself there, <laughs> but it's, it's just the way that the country prepared to defend itself. And it never happened. Mm. Or it didn't happen in the way that they envisaged it. You know, they fight yeah. off an air, an air force rather than an army. Um, so that is just fascinating to me. And it's how all these resources, all these people, get you know put where they need to be and then by the end of the war we have probably the, one of the greatest home armies that the world's ever known and it never gets used yeah, but, yeah that, that's what's fascinating yeah, um, yeah so you know for me it's i want to talk about things like halting tanks how do you stop a panzer once it's got in the country you know how do you go from a, a citizen to a, a home guardsman how does that work you know, and you've got the regular army in there chris was mentioning that there's so much to talk about and you haven't even got to you know how Mrs. Blenkinsop gets her uh, chops on a Friday night from <laughs> from the butchers. You know, you haven't even got to that part. Yeah, yet. Yeah, it's yeah, such an, yeah. an enriching, you know, to talk about those pork chops, there's such an enriching stew there of, of things <laughs> nice. to talk about. Nice. Yeah, <laughs> Mm, yeah stew. exactly right <laughs> yum yum yeah, mm. yeah. historical yeah, that's, stew delicious well, that's just got me thinking about you know where the meat came from you know the imports across from america and all that and the convoys which were a key part of you know it the second world war affected everyday life in every single way possible everything from the food you're eating through to the materials you were wearing in your clothes even um the paper for your newspaper was all changed by the Second World War for various factors. You know, um, one of the little details I haven't got them to hand is when you look at Second World War manuals, the British Army were issued with at the beginning of the war and at the end of the war, within a couple of years of the start of the Second World War, they go from really nice bound, uh, cloth-bound volumes, you know, with a nice front, thick front cardboard and back cover, through to little piddly pamphlets on really thin paper within the space of a year or two. And it's just seen that... Um, changing materials represented through the military manuals as well, which is something that's not necessarily been looked at, but just shows the level of um, the the effect that the Second World War had on basic materials and the ready readily avail the availability of such materials as well. Which is, you know, like I said, literally everything was affected by the war on the home front. Mm, exactly. Mm. Talking about books, there, you know, that doesn't just affect the army. The your regular paperback goes through such a, a, a melange of editions during the war. You get the the wartime. I forget exactly the the name of it. I wrote. I should remember because I wrote an article for Armour, right, about the books in the Second World War. But it's like the wartime book council, and the, the pages get thinner. The backing of the paper uh, hardbacks is thinner, and that runs through until like 1948-46 because of the shortages. And there's so much there, and that's another. Th thing we could, we're going to keep saying it on the show but that's something you wouldn't think would be affected but when you think of it a little deeper no no of course it would be affected because when you're manufacturing paper you're not just using that wood for paper you're using that wood to build loads of other things that are so important yeah mosquitoes mosquitoes yeah decking for ships and things like that. decking for ships yeah you know uh 
clogs. Clogs, I don't know. Yeah, exactly. Anything. <laughs> you know, footwear, what anything. We're just going to do war material, coverall. There you go. <laughs> there we go. That was a little brief overview of what we're going to talk about. This might be a shorter episode than we want to do, but we just want to sort of hit the hit the uh, the key points as we move on. So maybe, chaps, in part two, we should answer some listener questions. What to do in an air raid? Get undercover at once. Okay, so uh, we asked uh, we asked you on socials to, to to send your questions about the home front, and we got quite a few through, and uh, a whole mix, uh, which really kind of signifies just how, how in depth this this subject can go. Uh, but we we picked a couple that we thought would be uh, would be really interesting. Um, so the first is uh, from Matthew Moss. He's asked, I'd be interested to hear if you guys have some insight into the US civilian effort, the American Committee for the Defense of British Homes, to send personal firearms over to the UK to help defend about invasion. I've seen occasional mentions, but never dug deeper. I, I took the, the challenge on this one. So this committee, the, the Committee for the Defense of British Homes, is set up on the 31st of July, 1940. The chairman was a man called Charles Sidney Cutting. He was an explorer, philanthropist, author, um, just a, a wealthy New Yorkian, I guess. Um, and the scheme called for Americans to donate pistols, shotguns, revolvers and rifles um, and binoculars, among other things, for the Home Guard. Um, so they had to weave through a little bit of uh, bureaucracy um, to get the legality of shipping these things over. Um, they find they get a license to export these weapons from about mid 1940 onwards. Prominent names in American firearms industry sat on the committee, such as Albert Foster, who was um, working for Colt Firearms Company at the time, Carl Frederick of the National Rifle Association and Douglas Wesson of the famous Smith & Wesson Company were on the, the uh, chairman. And then the weapons are donated as well from famous people. So Theodore Roosevelt has a hunting rifle donated by his wife, of all people. Um, and then a rifle used in the 1908 uh, Olympics by Major John Hessian for, for, for marksman shooting is donated. And it has a uh, plate on it that reads... For obvious reasons, the return of this rifle after Germany is defeated would be deeply appreciated. <laughs> That's what I'd love to know Isn't what that happened. To that. <laughs> I couldn't find anything more at the, uh, um, at the time. But Lord Beaverbrook is involved in this, um, and he supports it. Um, and he, a lot of the weapons donated actually go to Home Guard units serving at his um, Ministry of Aircraft uh, Production map factories. The scheme worked on a donation model, so uh, Americans would donate weapons to their local uh, committee member, or sometimes they would just donate money, and the the committee would go out and purchase rifles from you know gun dealers or or buy them from surplus stocks, and even the U.S. Uh, police donated weaponry, uh, including uh, pistols and at least forty Thompson submachine guns, um, and I've, I think one hundred and ten Thompsons were donated in, t- in its entirety. But I actually found some letters that were sent back to the main chapter um, of the committee uh, to a man called Brooks Whitehouse uh, in 1941. And this is from uh, J.M. Keeling, who's a major in the uh, tea company, the 22nd Sussex Battalion Home Guard. And he writes, Dear Mr. Whitehouse, your gift of a Springfield rifle has been issued to my Home Guard company, and I wish to express to you my sincere appreciation of this most friendly gesture to our country. You may be sure that your rifle will be in good hands if the Hun invades this country, and I hope it will account for more than one of them. My company operates near the site of the Battle of Hastings, and is therefore a likely invasion area in this war, as it was in 1066. Good care will be taken of your rifle, and every endeavour made to return it to you 
after the war. Grateful thanks. Yours, Major Keeling. Love that. Amazing. How cool is that? Yeah. How cool (laughs) is that? So interestingly, I think some of those, um, you mentioned the US police force um, uh, donating uh, Smith & Wessons and, and Thompsons. I think almost certainly that some of those went to the Yorks units. Wouldn't surprise me, yeah. Um, yeah, it wouldn't. That actually, because uh, we've got a scribble on a on a bit of paper in the archives from Churchill, so um, without going into too much depth about the Yorks, the uh, Ironside had to keep Churchill, um, uh, Gubbins had to keep uh, Ironside and Churchill up to date with the progress of, of the Yorks units. He sent memos over time. Churchill scribbled on one of them, all these men must have revolvers. So not just the officers, right. like every single member. And super quickly, and I think I think I remember reading something that some of these came directly from the US police force. Smith and Wessons were being handed out left, right, and centre. Yeah. Um, which is really would, interesting. Really would they interesting. revolvers or automatic or semi-autos like pistols? Any idea? I, I don't <sighs> so from my research on doing about the research in the committee today. Um, yeah, a lot of stuff I found is they mentioned pistols and revolvers, so I think oh, it was okay. a mix. Yeah, and I found some uh, some great photos that I'll put on the uh, the Homefront History Twitter at HFH History, by the way, if you want to search us and follow us. Um, of a, of it's from a can't remember the exact name of the publication right now, but there's some fabulous pictures of chaps mm. like getting BARs or show shots, and there's a, a yeah. chat with a like a sort of link full of pistols and revolvers, and and a, a lot of it was. First World War surplus that Chaps just had knocking about, um, but I think a lot of Andy's right. I think a lot of the pistols came from police stores um, initially, which is really and it's particularly interesting for the auction units because actually pistols aren't very an effective weapon for them. Probably guns not. In, no. Guns in guns in effect guns in general are not great for the auction units because they don't want to get in a gun battle. They want to um, they yeah. want to slip in and slip out. But yeah, I mean, I guess I guess it talks a lot about the precedence that um, that Churchill and those guys gave to them that they were determined to, to arm them, whether they needed them or not. Yeah. And um, <clears throat> post-fall of France, you know, there was a massive push to buy Thompson's um, by the British government anyway, wasn't they, using gold bullion? And I can't remember what the exact figures were for the cost of a Thompson, but it was something like £21 or something, which mm. uh, was, led the way to the introduction of cheaper weapons like the Sten. You know, yeah. because the, the yeah. cost of buying Thompsons from America using gold bullion was going to essentially bankrupt the country, which yeah. led to the development of, um, I say, I don't like using the term cheap and nasty because it bloody works and it kills people, you know, as effective as it could be. Uh, yeah. But cheap and nasty firearms like the Sten, you know. Yeah. No, I understand, uh, yeah. You it know, does the um, job, doesn't it? It might not be that, it might not look nice as a Thompson, but it, it does the job. Exactly, you know, the key, key part of the, the war effort was to... Yeah minimize costs as much as possible but maximize materials and you know and i just love that ingenuity when it comes to the sten gun and when it comes to the simplification of the brain gun and the enfield rifle when you see that see the um powers that be thinking about how to save as much material as possible yeah and trying to win the um production war against germany which is just as key as actually fighting on land you know that's, yeah that yeah, really exactly fascinates right. me exactly um and but in terms of going back to the, the committee here so when these shipments start arriving um, the first shipment is actually, you know, as I mentioned, given to one of uh, Beaverbrook's uh, map factories, and it's the Vickers factory in Birmingham. And they receive 100 Remington Model 141 rifles, very basic single shot bolt actions. Quite, I think they're probably quite rare now, probably. Um, but then that led me into, I didn't really go into it in too much detail in my in my notes here, but it's it must have been a procurement nightmare for the Home Guard elements that receive them, because now you've got this obscure American rifle, and are you going to have 
you know, enough rounds for it. But then I found some really interesting figures from that main uh, committee. So they say 26 cases of firearms all in all were uh, collected. So they would be shipped to New York and then they'd be processed and sent over. So the committee is received to date, and this is from January 1941. This is just the main committee. Um, 1,810 guns. 1,573 revolvers, 846 pairs of binoculars, um, 198, uh, 729 rounds of ammunition. So just shy of 200k rounds of ammunition there. Wow. And 1,887 steel helmets. That's just from one committee. Yeah, that's Mm. amazing. How did they ship them over? Did they come? Did they come? Just in convoys. Just in convoys. It's on the convoys. So only four shipments are lost during the war, and there was uh, 64 shipments during the, uh, the committee's runtime. And that, that runs from July 1940 up until June 1942 when they dissolve it, because obviously by that time, the Home Guard are getting much more uh, like standardised kit. Mm, yeah, mm. yeah. Um, they're aiming to give them um, mainly focused around the uh, 30 cal and things like that, aren't they? But yeah, main, mainly around standardisation of ammunition and weapon systems. So all in all, uh, over 25,000 weapons are sent over. Wow. Um, and I found a little, another little fact here, um, and I'll, I'll leave you with it because I think it's really cute. So the chap who captured Rudolf Hess on the 10th of May 1941 after his really weird solo flight that he did, <laughs> um, David McLean, uh, he was a, a ploughman, he gets awarded a rifle uh, from the uh, committee, uh, from oh. the stock of the committee, um, and I found a, a news piece from the Belfast Telegraph um, from the 25th of August. And it says, um, rifle for Hess capture. The American Committee for the Defence of British Homes has received the rifle to be forwarded to David McLean, the Scottish farmer who captured Rudolf Hess. The rifle was contributed by Chester K. Brooks of Thomasville, Georgia and Cleveland, Ohio, who sent the following telegram to the committee. Please send immediately to stout-hearted David McLean to replace his pitchfork with one thirty-eight caliber rifle with 100 rounds of ammunition from the people of Georgia, whom I have the honour to represent the state chairman of the American Committee of the Defence of British Homes. A Leanville rifle or 100 rounds of ammunition has been prepared for shipment addressed to Mr McLean in Strathaven, Lanarkshire, Scotland. Did wow. he, do, do we know if he got it? I think he must have, because there, there was quite a few. There was, it's like a truncated news piece that was in about six or seven newspapers that I looked through and he gets given oh, this rifle. There's no picture, great. unfortunately, but yeah, it was a nice do you know what? Tidbit. Do you know what's really interesting about that, that Hess story is that, that he, that David captures him only armed with a pitchfork. Mm. And, and, and it's those kind of stories that then go to, to accentuate people's uh, opinion and view on, on the home guard. And yeah, it uh, you know, it, it's true, but it's, it, it, it it doesn't help. Yeah. <laughs> do, you, yeah. do you know what I mean? <laughs> he captured the leading Nazi with a pitchfork. And just there. imagine Hess there being go. like all dazed and confused from the crash and some big Scottish yeah. farmer comes up yeah, with a pitchfork. I mean, I think a pitchfork would be more scary in his hands than, than a rifle. Do you know what I mean? Hands up, laddie. He's <laughs> <laughs> like, just like, oh, I just give up. <laughs> must have been scary as. I'd, I'd actually like to sue for peace. No, come with me to the barn. I think Hess might have been a bit confused before he got in the plane, frankly. Well, yeah, yeah. I think Hess was <laughs> confused really long landed. before he got in that plane, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I hope that answers your question, Matt. That's really Very cool. Good. Enjoyed that, yeah, that was decent. Mm. Some good stuff there. There's, there's a it lot more really on that committee um, that that can be dug deeper. I'm thinking of spinning that off into an article because it's so interesting. That's a really good idea. Yeah. yeah. 
But that's just got me thinking, you know, the way my mind works is in terms of how the hell do you provide all the ammunition for those various weapon types that you're receiving? You know, because the army's all based on standardization of munition types. You know, it's a key factor, up until, you know, even today. Um, and it just makes me wonder, you, you know, you're obviously they were receiving ammunition for these guns and with the guns, but that must have been a bloody nightmare to make sure that the right guns and the ammunition go to where they need it. Yeah. You know, uh, just, yeah. Amazing. I know some. I know some guns arrived with AUX units, and three months later, the ammunition arrived. Fantastic. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what I mean? But yeah. you can still throw it pretty hard, can't you? While you're you on the yeah, ammunition. Still, yeah, exactly. And that's, that's probably more effective for AUX, as I said. Just whack them over the edge of it <laughs> rather, yeah. than, rather than shoot them. Give them a good hit. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so our next question comes from uh, James Stinton. Uh, he's asking about rationing. So he said, "I've read that the rationing system works extremely well during war. However," Was there any point during the war that the government thought the system might be about to run into serious issues such as severe shortages or even collapse? Mm. Which is a really good question. And I think, you know, rationing is one of those subjects that kind of sums up the British war experience. And, you know, you get those those views of of mainly women kind of queuing outside shops, as you're saying, for for their chop or or, you know. For, for whatever it might be and it's uh you know it kind of underlines some of the hardship but actually we were britain was struggling uh to produce enough food for ourselves even before the second world war even before hitler started to you know try to starve us out of existence so so i think in 1939 less than one third of the food available in the uk uh was home produced and oh, wow. we had to produce, we had to import something ridiculous, like 20 million tonnes each year. Yeah. So that Thank included you. like meat, cheese, sugar, fruit, cereals, fats, huge quantities of fuel. And it's, you know, it's a situation that even in kind of the late 30s, so 36, 37, as, you know, Germany's starting to ramp up, starting to get more aggressive, the government's already thinking. Actually, we need to we need to do something about this because we are way too reliant on 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 imports and and our ability to to feed and, and fuel ourselves from from, from that. And actually, that's not, that's not cropped up again ever, has it? That's never been a problem ever again. <laughs> right. We fought a war right. and actually ended, and we never had to worry about importing anything ever again. <laughs> no shortages of anything, none whatsoever. Jesus Hello, Christ. Right. <laughs> derail you there, Andy. I just thought it <laughs> it's interesting. It's interesting, isn't it? Because they had they had um they had rationing in in the first world war. So yeah, I was so, going to say. So the Germans tried the same thing with with, mm. with, with the U boats and, and cutting off. And I think, but it wasn't they came very until... close during the first world war as well. The Didn't first they? world war, they in 1917 towards the end of 1917, they came very very close to the U boat campaign. It was um yeah because in one of my previous jobs where I worked for the Council for British Archaeology, I did a massive um, first world war homefront project. And Chris flexing <laughs> on us there, Andy. Oh yeah, there we go. <laughs> um, it, it was a national project uh, funded by Historic England and various organisations across the UK. Um, <laughs> but a big part of that was looking at um, the effects of rationing and, you know, how the com- country came extremely close to being starved out during the First World War. And it's it's very clear when you look at the Second World War that those lessons were clearly learned from the First World War in many respects. Um, sorry to, yeah, derail that. <laughs> yeah, no, exa- exactly. But it, it, it's, it, they, they learned, but in the interwar years, went, <laughs> went back to a situation where we would be completely screwed if 
any kind of war happens again. And it kind of sums up a, maybe an attitude that, perhaps understandably, that one, they didn't want to think about a another war that was going to impact the country like that again after the, after the First World War. Um, and, you know, we've, you know, we've got the uh, League of Nations in now, so that's no problems. So they, they'll sort everything yeah. else out. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, tw- reliant on 20 million tonnes of imports for a population of 50 million, I think, probably, probably about 39. Mm. So we, we, at the start of the war, we were, we were in deficit. And I think by, so the government did recognize it kind of 36, they started, they started to sort themselves out. I think by 38, they'd started to actually print ration books. Um, ready. Yeah. Ready, ready to go. Um, so, so they, so they were pretty well prepared, but, but overall, and I, I think the other thing, the other thing about rationing, that's really interesting is and at the time they pushed this this message was that it meant that everyone on the face of it had access to the same amount of food whether you were incredibly rich or 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 on the breadline i mean obviously that didn't work out necessarily but but yeah, that was still the aim buy to, yourself food yeah in very posh places exactly so that 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 was that was the aim to 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 try and push that kind of equality message through through throughout the throughout the country um so but but certain things weren't on ration so like game wasn't on on ration i remember my grand telling me so she was still in south london with her mum and her sister but her dad uh worked for the bank of england uh and he'd been taken down he'd been uh, evacuated out to to hampshire where the bank of england had been um relocated and he'd come home kind of every three months on the train with like a brace of pigeon and some rabbits and stuff and stuff like yeah, that because that was popular they, they went, yeah. yeah yeah correct <laughs> um because they 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 went on ration but overall i i can't i i, I think that there were shortages obviously and people had to queue and people you know there weren't any bananas and they 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 couldn't get access to the stuff they could have kind of mm. pre-war but but generally the rationing system worked incredibly well actually al murray stole our funder a bit because it because james asked a question on twitter and then al bloody answered it um thanks but, al uh, <laughs> al 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 quotes uh dan todman in his the minister book. of food the pub landlords yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah dan todman's book Brenda britain's well it's brilliant if anyone if anyone's not not read it absolutely worth reading but he says so uh, during the summer of 1941, the UK brought about a million tons more grain and 700,000 tons more sugar from America than it could actually use. Oh, wow. The grain was stockpiled than ever before. Sorry, more grain was stockpiled than ever before in the history of the British Empire. None of it would be ever be released for public consumption. The fears raised by the shipping crisis in 1940-1941 meant that the Ministry of Food held it back against a future shortage. Eventually, it was stored so long that it had to be destroyed unsurprisingly the americans would in future find it difficult to take the estimates of the uk's bare minimum needs for food imports more seriously so we were we were you know that and that is why the battle of the atlantic is a hugely important one for, for for us but but we were we were we were managing to get huge amounts of of grain and food from from aboard still through 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 the convoys and equally we had campaigns like dig for victory you know in britain um so people you know people were were encouraged to take up every bit of land they could to, to to grow their own to grow their own rations and you know making making cakes out of anything that uh that apart from the usual uh usual ingredients um 
uh, there seems to be a lot of potatoes involved in almost every every I food. Yeah. Wants to fly that. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. Um, so, so I don't think it. I think it was a really a, a effective um, uh, way yeah. of, of 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 being able to to deal with the situation. And again, the the, the preparedness, the the fact that they're already thinking about this in thirty six. I mean, you know, and and had printed ration books by thirty eight perhaps goes against our perception of Chamberlain's government um in 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 that period of the war in terms of um sticking their head in the sand thinking there was no war coming and and, and desperately trying for appeasement. But actually mm. they were they were already thinking well actually we need to get this stuff sorted just in case. Um so yeah it's really really interesting question. I think we should do a lot more on, on rationing and the the impact of rationing oh, yeah, and, and what exactly we can Definitely. get. There's um, so much room isn't there so much yeah, scope for it. Massive, massive. Yeah, I think yeah. maybe an interesting thing would be to do in the future um, is do like a we all try rationing for a week. I think that's always quite interesting. Oh, that's a really good that idea. I've always wanted to do, funnily enough, because I leave a very, lead a very sad life. Um, <laughs> uh, but yeah, that's uh, something I've yeah always wanted Chris to try. Pig. Yeah. Oh yeah. See oh, how well, Chris, have, you, have you volunteered? Brilliant. Uh, there we go. Oh, well, I, I've been volunteered. Um, <laughs> Robbie, and I can, Robbie and I can sit back and watch you. Watch me pass out at <laughs> the end watching of the week. With her away. <laughs> yeah. Well, have, no, we'll have to do it like Monopoly. We'll have to bring in like oh. chance, chance cards, you know. Oh, that's a good like, idea, yeah. A week in a trench. butchers. No meat this week. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Occasionally, if you if you well behave, you'll get a black market card and you can get... Mm, you can get... Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, could we, we could really go deep and he could fill his car up with a red tractor petrol that's been, you know, died by a Yeah, in, well, in rural Norfolk. Yeah, that's, <laughs> yeah, that goes down. That's quite easy. Though. I just nip down to the farm and nick some and fill my course <laughs> up with that. Yeah, there we go. Challenge Chris. So that was the inaugural episode of the Homefront History Podcast. We hope you'll join us again. Um, topics for, you know, will be various week to week. We might even get some guests in, some, some well-known faces or voices, if, if you will, um, week to week. Follow us on Homefront History um, on Twitter. You can also follow us on Instagram. Just, just search us up and you'll find us there. And, yeah, thanks, guys, again. Thanks, guys. No worries. Cheers, thanks. Brilliant. Bye. Cheers. Bye.